This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, Wall Street Journal technology reporter Jeff Horwitz discusses his book, Broken Code Inside Facebook and the Fight to Expose Its Harmful Secrets. He speaks about Facebook's growth as a company and the challenges its platforms have faced. He's interviewed by Bloomberg News reporter Sarah Fryer. We assume you're here because you enjoy listening to C-SPAN's podcast. If you're a regular listener, please consider supporting our nonprofit operations so we can continue to bring you quality public affairs podcasts like these. Visit cspan.org slash donate to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Jeff, thank you so much. I'm so glad we have the opportunities to talk about this today. And I really want to start by bringing our viewers back to fall of 2021, when you released the Facebook file um, and a, a series of stories that really sparked this this global conversation about um, about the company and and how a lot of it, a lot of what it was communicating to the public was not how it was working internally. Can you take us back to, to that moment in those stories and what that was like? Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, the book came out of uh, initially the documents that were provided to us by Francis Haugen, a former Facebook employee who um, in her final uh, stint, final months at the company, um, began talking with the journal and uh, documenting some of the things that she was concerned about internally. And um, she ended up taking more than 20,000 screenshots of um, internal work product. And that was kind of the basis for the Facebook files. And the stuff covered just kind of a really wide range of how Facebook interacted with society from like the special dispensations it gave to powerful individuals on the account on the the platform to violate its rules and not get punished to uh, teen mental health uh, and Instagram issues uh, to, um, you know, sort of the company's uh, failure to combat um, human trafficking on its platform until Apple threatened to remove its apps from the app store, unless it did something about it to COVID and, um, so there was kind of a, a pretty, and then also to politics, right? How the platform changed um, the tenor of political conversations worldwide by favoring really vitriolic, um, you know, kind of firebrand content um, over over sort of more moderate voices. So all of that was like kind of this big mass of documents that we got, and um, 
that sort of suggested the company was far from the neutral platform that Meta had Facebook Meta had always spoken it of it as, and um, I think that's that was kind of the basis of that stuff. Obviously, those documents ended up going to Congress and to a whole bunch of other news outlets as well um, in the end. And uh, from there, I think the goal was to write a book that both went deeper into those records than a newspaper could ever do. And also that explained the story of how it came to be because Frances Haugen only touched on a small piece of her work, you know, it was, was only a, a tiny piece of uh, the overall sort of collection of information. Uh, and I, I kind of wanted to write the story of how Facebook came to be aware of its role in the world and um, how it affected human interaction and in some instances distorted it. And, uh, you know, kind of the people who made those discoveries and the internal fight to try to um, get Facebook to address some of the things that um, its own safety staff discovered. The thing that is so stunning about all of this is, is not just what you were able to reveal um, through those documents, but also just the contrast, the, the constant contrast between how Facebook was presenting itself and its goals to the public and what it was doing behind the scenes. So can you paint a picture for us of like what things Facebook says, what it, now the company is called Meta, well, what, what does Zuckerberg say about the company's goals and about its attention to these difficult problems? And how does that contrast with what you've seen behind the scenes? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think one of the things that sort of paved the way for the difficulty Facebook had after 2016 and sort of the internal reckoning was that they the had been... The 2016 presidential election, election yeah, so, uh, yeah. Is that they'd been... Pollyanna-ish uh, about the platform's role in the world. The idea was that they were going to connect everyone and that uh, it was going to make the world better in every possible way. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg at one point talked about how the spread of Facebook would literally end terrorism in the Middle East because, you know, young disaffected youth that were online uh, and were connected via social networks to, you know, young disaffected youth on the other side would lose the capacity to hate, right? Obviously, that didn't work out very well. Um, and so they they kind of just had this, like, everything's going to be great all the time um, expectation. I think they didn't put much work into safety at the, at the beginning. Um, you know, it was just kind of, we'll deal with the worst possible stuff. If it breaks the law and it comes to our attention, then we'll take it down. Um, but they didn't really do much on that front. And I think one of the things that was really important here was that the company was um, in the, uh, you know, for basically the last decade was sort of leaning heavier and heavier into algorithmic recommendation systems. The platform stopped being kind of the original version of Facebook and social media where kind of you just followed your friends and you saw the things they posted and it became much more heavy on recommendations. And as you know, this mm -hmm. is true of Instagram as well. And uh, so they sort of taking a more active role in promoting content, but they um, never really liked the idea that they were responsible for what they promoted. Um, you know, the whole idea was that the platform was completely neutral, that Mark Zuckerberg, um, you know, wanted humans to be completely out of the loop. But at the same time, I think one of the things that, that uh, the safety staff found was that um, not making choices about what content thrives in your platform and what content you promote is still making a choice, right? Uh, it was 
um, turned out to be very easy to game the platform um, that bad actors didn't matter if they were Russians or Macedonian high school students or, um, you know, just about anybody who was committed um, could pretty easily game the algorithm. Uh, and uh, they just sort of I think they just didn't assume. I mean, for a company that set out to change the world. Right. Which was kind of Facebook's thing. They, to some degree, were shockingly unprepared for actually changing it. If that makes sense. Right. It, it seems to me that, you know, just from from your book and also from my own conversations, they have this idea that, you know, as people become connected, they generate empathy, they'll um, they'll build friendships, that all connection is good and all conversation is good as, a, as an extension of that. Right. And as you lay out in, in many cases of Facebook groups with um, recommendations for who to follow on Instagram with um, virality in itself, like often those those recommendations or or just giving the people what they want turns into disaster or harm. Um, can you give us a few examples? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think I actually would, would question a little bit one thing you said there, which is that it's giving the people what they want, right? Um, they have this like extremely rudimentary system in some ways for determining what people want. It's like called, if you get a response, then send more of whatever got a response, right? Unless like literally seeing a post cause people to close out of the platform, if they respond in any fashion, that's a good thing. And, um, you know, engagement this is, is, is the, the industry term for that, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and so, uh, you know, they, they, uh, and one of the really interesting things is that they did user surveys and very clearly the users wanted them to do far more to address misinformation, to, um, you know, reduce kind of disturbing, uh, content to address clickbait and engagement bait efforts to just basically game the system um, to boost more reliable news over, um, you know, fly by night publishers that were um, either making things up or just, um, uh, you know, stealing other people's work and making it more aggressive. Like users wanted this stuff and they told the comp company that in no simple in no, no uncertain terms. But at the same time, the engagement metric, right, which is like, do they use the product for more and longer? That was um, always what the company trusted as what users really wanted. Right. And uh, I think that was a to some degree, it's a pretty unfortunate choice and one that does disrespect um, uh, you know, people's actually stated choice. It's like, oh, you know, um, you know, you say you don't want this, but you can't turn your eyes away. So clearly you do want it. Right. And that's that's I don't think a, a particularly healthy approach for um, or a respectful approach, if that makes sense to users. Right. We've seen some lawmakers compare social media to fast food or cigarettes or sugar um, what comparison do you have in your mind and, and how do you think about it as you're working on this book um, about you know, really something that people have grappled with on social media for so many years? What do you what do you think you bring to the conversation that moves it forward here? Um, I want to want to let yeah. people know why they should take a look. Tall, tall order, tall order. Um, but uh, that said, uh, I would say that um, what I am trying to bring to the conversation is 
first of all, a sense that social media isn't just like some monolithic thing that was invented and now, you know, exists like electricity or, you know, anything else. Like th these are, these are like what happens on a platform depends very heavily on the design choices made and the motivations of the people who are building it. Um, and that there is a lot of control. I think something that, that the company historically has always really shied away from is explaining what it's, core mechanics are and and why they were designed that way right like i mean how many times have you have you heard the phrase you know we connect you with uh the people and things uh you know you love or or like Fair. you know kind of these extremely vague things that acknowledge that there's a lot going on but um don't really say what the company was doing and and I think that a lot of the choices when you start looking at them a little more closely um start looking um i would say somewhat uh, morally suspect, um, you know, is it a, uh, you know, just because people, um, tend to respond to vitriolic political stuff, does that mean you should send them more vitriolic political stuff? Um, you know, I think that's, and, you know, that's not something that I think is, is, uh, an obvious yes, but it always was at Meta. Uh, likewise, I think, you know, some of the design cha changes that they've made, um, Things like uh, allowing people to invite literally thousands of people into groups per day, like send bulk invites to thousands of people. Um, you know, the safety researchers did plenty of work on this. They were finding that, um, you know, the speed at which Facebook groups grew made them completely ungovernable. Um, if, you know, even a, a well-intentioned group administrator couldn't possibly keep up. Uh, and, you know, in some instances, you had literally a single user that invited 400,000 people into a QAnon conspiracy group over the course of um, uh, four months. Uh, right. Like anything. I think the company had a hard time suggesting or uh, accepting that there might be anything that was such a thing as bad usage. Right. Um, other than like kind of the most obvious spam and fake account stuff um beyond that you know if people wanted to use the platform to um you know try to manipulate public opinion if people wanted to um uh you know uh sort of build hyper aggressive almost i mean misinformation based so uh social movements um that you know that was something that the company just didn't really want to touch Talk to us a little bit about, you know, ever, ever since Elon Musk acquired Twitter, turned it into X, there has been this, um, this drumbeat. And, and even before that with Facebook, um, this drumbeat of people calling for, you know, free speech, like Facebook shouldn't manipulate what we, what we think and see and do. And, and I guess what I'm gathering from what you're saying is, there was never a world in which Facebook didn't manipulate what we see Absolutely. and think and do. Um, can you explain that a little bit to those who might not understand how algorithms work, how um, recommendations work, that there is Absolutely. no natural neutral? Yeah. I mean, I think, look, there is a natural neutral, which is called Facebook in 2004. People post things and you can visit other people's profiles and you can look and see what they posted, Right. After that, things start getting a lot more complicated. Um, and uh, I think, you know, the conversation that we had about social media for a lot of years was um, based, you know, pretty much limited to like, what should they take down? Right. Um, you know, like, is this such a bad thing that it, it needs to get removed? Um, and, they, you know, so it was just kind of this binary censorship type question. 
Um, and you know that doesn't really account for how the platform works. As you were saying, um, the way that um, I mean, Meta can the way that things that posts make it into people's feeds, um, whether that's Instagram or Facebook, uh, that is uh, a combination of design choices um, in terms of uh, you know what the company believes users are most likely to do, and then just kind of some straight algorithmic black box work in which. Literally, you are turning over to a computer uh, the goal of maximizing engagement, um, however it sees fit. And so it'll serve whatever content it predicts is most likely to yield engagement. Uh, and, you know, one thing that they did, I think very intentionally, was dial up virality, right? They constantly made the platform faster. They constantly, um, you know, tried to make it easier for um you know, just sort of massive amounts of activity. I think one thing in the book that, like, really touches on kind of where you know, not everything's algorithm, right? Like what, you know, where the company went wrong uh, was uh, it was a, it was the friending team, right? So this is a team that's responsible for trying to increase the number of connections people make on the platform. Reasonable goal in principle. Problem is, is they realized that for several years, the way they'd been hitting their targets was by um, encouraging people who were already friending more than 50 people a day to friend even more people, right? And like, as soon as I read that, or I suspect as soon as you, you know, like anyone hears that, they would think, oh, God, nobody makes legitimately 50 friends a day on a regular basis. Like, what sort of activity are you actually boosting? Uh, because they had, you know. Like um, spam. I mean, like, it, it sure sounds like it, right? I, I just have a hard time. Maybe, you know, theoretically, one person could one day after joining Facebook, brand new, find 50 people they know and friend them all. But like that's a one-time thing, uh, you know, like the quality of connection, um, you know, and that's something that theoretically Facebook was supposed to be working on. The quality of connection is obviously going to be trash if you're sending out a hundred invites per day. Um, and the company though, just like, just didn't want to hear it even when its own staff was raising this. And so, uh, you know, there's a combination of two things, right? One is the algorithm because there's the people, um, you know, people you may know was what, um, it turns out they were recommending the people who send 100x friend requests a day because guess what? Those people accept every friend request they get. Um, uh, so there's the algorithmic part of it. But then there's also the design choice, which is like, should you really be able to send out um, hundreds of friend requests per day? Uh, and, you know, Meta could never bring itself to say maybe that's unhealthy growth. And these, these metrics matter for a couple of reasons to Facebook, right? First being if you're on the friend team trying to make more friend connections, maybe if you hit that goal, that number, you get a bonus, you get a raise, you get promoted. And two, um, if you create more connections from people on Facebook, more content is eligible to show up in their newsfeed, which then makes for more slots for potential advertising, which is Facebook's whole cash cow. Correct. Yeah, and I think that that was another thing that was really fascinating to realize was just how much users were um, being manipulated into certain types of behavior, right? Um, they would um, also try to manipulate users into posting more, um, you know, by, say, for example, showing them when they were launching Reels, they would try to show people, you know, five or six versions of videos in a row, uh, I mean, the same audio being used in different videos in a row, because that increased it increased the number of times that people then went out and used that same audio, right? It was like they were trying to basically create an impression of 
extreme popularity and getting get people to join on the bandwagon and so like i think that's so interesting yeah the metrics were are, are all important to that company right um you know if you can't measure it as a problem it doesn't exist is you know i think a, a frequent complaint of a lot of the people who were trying to argue for um kind of more interventions uh and more ways to mitigate some of the known issues um and so you know they they would just you know, whatever was going to hit the numbers, they would kind of um, bang on that drum. And to some degree, I think it makes sense, right? You know, the move fast and break things ethos that the company had early on was kind of the reason why it beat out its other competitors is that like, if something was going to increase usage, they would just hammer on it um, until the number went up. And they never really sort of lost that approach, even after they were running something that I think by their own acknowledgement was a... um, near indispensable public utility, right? Um, You know, something that people relied on around the world to have conversations and to, you know, discover information. They um, were still running it as if they were just trying to get the, you know, get the quarterly number up. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best, it's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line it's possible complex specialty care that cares about your roi it's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder and after 2016 presidential election which we we talked about earlier um where facebook um realized that there was there was manipulation on the platform by by state actors like russia um, where they, they pledge to do more. Zuckerberg goes on this cross-country tour where he's basically a politician um, and promises that, you know, he's really about building community and empathy. That 2018 year, that's when Frances Haugen joins. And why does she join Facebook? Yes, yeah, so I think Frances is a fascinating human being and a remarkable source, Um Uh, You know, this is a story that, like, candidly, the people at Meta had a hard time believing because it was so, like, almost like scripted good. Uh, And candidly, I did, too. When I first met her and and heard all about this stuff, I was like, I think this person's gilding the lily. I had to do a lot of research. So her background is that she had um, she had a friend who was radicalized on the Internet. Um, and it wasn't Meta's platforms that did it. Um, but, uh, this guy went from, um, you know, sort of being, a, shall we say he went down a rabbit hole that began with politics and ended up with, uh, some version of, um, white nationalism and the singularity, uh, which is when computers overtake human beings as, uh, you know, the more intelligent and dominant force. Uh, it was all very weird, but point being is this, this guy just lost his marbles actually by his own admission. I tracked him down later. And so she, um, Facebook had tried to recruit her for years, um, because, you know, that's not a sign that she was like necessarily the, you know, the most valuable person in the world. It was just that this was a company that had an insatiable appetite for anyone who was, um, good at data, data science and sort of had a, a track record of being able to do this sort of work. Um, I mean, they were doubling in size every 18 months. So they, she finally basically bit on a recruiting offer and um, told them that because of her friend uh, and 
you know, having the experience of having lost a friend to radicalization, she wanted to work on misinformation. Uh, she wanted to work on um, on that sort of stuff. And so she was like very transparent about why she was coming in, uh, which is that, you know, she believed that social media was potentially a risk and that she needed to address it uh, or needed to do her part to address it. And she then spent a couple of years, I think, growing increasingly disillusioned um, because, you know, one of the things that anyone going through Meta's internal documents will realize is that a lot of the problems that the company describes as being intractable are ones that um, there were, in fact, um, plans drawn up for to address. And, and you know, the, the plan wasn't like to censor everybody, right? Like it wasn't, you know, this wasn't a kind of a free speech based thing. If anything, I think the people who did integrity work, safety work at the company really tried to get away from individual content calls. The whole idea was maybe you make things a little less viral. Um, maybe you are more careful with what you recommend. Um, in other words, if you recommend something, it has to not be bad news, right? You have to be confident of that. Um, and if you can't be confident of that, maybe you shouldn't be recommending content. Uh, these were things that the company just simply wouldn't do. And I think, uh, you know, um, a thing that was always frustrating to the people who did integrity work was there were clearly trade-offs between growth and integrity, right? After a certain point, um, the only way for the company to maximize usage was to sort of start encouraging less healthy behaviors, um, whether that was like consuming um, a ton of like body image um, related content for young women, or whether that was like encouraging people to like join 400 rabid political groups on Facebook, uh, that many of which were run by overseas actors. Uh, you know, there was always sort of, it turned out the way the company was hitting its growth targets was like frequently had a dark side and the company did not want to listen to that. So they did have all these smart people working on these problems, proposing solutions, but every time that would trickle up to the top, they would get shut down essentially. And that's the, why Francis. Yeah. I mean, and this, was, this, was, this was true everywhere, but like, you know, and I had a hard time believing this at first when I saw these stats that, um, essentially anything that damaged growth or daily usage. And when, when I say damaged, I mean literally reduced by 0.05%. Um, that was dead on arrival. You could not change the platform in ways that reduced usage. That was just simply not allowed ever. Um, and in fact, as Facebook's growth slowed, um, uh, those rules got even more stringent, right? Like anything that would decrease any metric that was related to usage was just dead on arrival. Um, and, uh, you know, the company talked about hard trade-offs, right, between various things, but the one thing that it never traded off was its own growth. And, um, uh, you know, that's, I think, a pretty challenging environment to work in. And I think one of the reasons why not just Francis, but a whole bunch of other employees got disaffected and walked. Um, I mean, I think to some degree, the book that I wrote is um, was only possible because Facebook Meta brought in a whole bunch of extremely smart people, told them to work on things that were clearly societally important, where lives were at stake, Uh you know, ask them for solutions. They came up with solutions and then Meta said, thanks, but we don't really want to do that. And, um, you know, you break people that way. 
Um, it's like one thing if, you know, your boss doesn't want to take your opinion about, you know, how to boost ad sales by a fraction of a percent. It's another thing when, you know, your boss is like unwilling to do things that might address uh, the um, mental health and well-being of, uh, of teenagers or um, the uh, you know, a genocide in Myanmar or, um, you know, the safety of the U.S. elections. Uh, those are things that I think, you know, understandably people had a really hard time being told to stand down on. And when all of this information came out in fall of 2021, did the company then acknowledge that it's that it's been you know, making these missteps? <laughs> um, you know, it was interesting. They almost started to acknowledge with teen mental health there were problems. And I think they determined that that was not a good strategy. This was, I think, a very uh, calculated decision. And some of the emails that have come out since in various state litigation seems to demonstrate that is that you know, they said it was all cherry picked and misrepresented and the work, you know, the research documents that we obtained, you know, they kind of threw the researchers under the bus and said that the research wasn't very good um, and, you know, wasn't credible. I uh, no, uh, the people internally, even senior people seem to acknowledge the reality of this stuff. Um, uh, you know, I mean, you have, you know, Instagram's form of head, former head of policy, uh, you know, stating that the platform just simply wasn't built for um, younger teens uh, and that, you know, it was going to be harmful. You have, um, uh, you know, people saying, oh, my God, we're putting these AI-based beauty filters on, which, uh, you know, like we're offering these up. They make both the people who post pictures in which they are, their their appearance is sort of improved and the people who see those pictures feel worse about themselves. But you know what? People use them. So, like, let's do it. Uh, I mean, they and really that, by the way, just came out in in some attorney general uh, exactly unsealed yeah, documents. Yeah, and, I mean, I think they really did have a sense of um, of the potential harms, but uh, you know, they obviously did not um, respond well to having their documents made public. And the company was, you know, said that it was, you know. The other companies might, you know, dial back on research under those circumstances, but it certainly wouldn't. And I, you know, uh, there is no question that that was not true, um, uh, you know, reporting in the book, um, because it turns out people kept on providing me documents, uh, demonstrated that um, that they were just cracking down massively on what researchers could say, on how they could express themselves. I mean, one thing that I, I loved is they um, they made very clear that at no point should an employee ever note that the company might be breaking the law or doing something unethical. Um, at you least should on never the writing, that writing uh, because uh, it might be misconstrued, right? And and so you know, I think there was kind of a. In some ways, it's been really gratifying to see some of the state AG stuff come out because. Um, uh, you know, I think a lot of the pushback the company gave when the Facebook files first came out, like, it's nice to be able to see that internally they didn't believe it either. How does it feel, um, you know, as a reporter with all of these employees who risked a lot, you know, that they've signed NDAs, they've, they've had these, these professional relationships to come and talk to you and say, 
you know, please put this out there in the public. I want to see something happen and then get that company response. How, how does that, how does that, uh, how do you even wrap your I mean, head around that as a journalist? From my point of view as a reporter, it's good. This is basically meta almost radicalizing its own staff um, uh, by, you know. Because more people you know, will, when, will come talk to you. Yeah, well, exactly. When, when your company is saying, oh, no, that research doesn't exist, we don't believe it, and everyone knows other, otherwise on your staff, uh, you know, you're really creating a kind of a um, delta between reality and the company's position. And I think that employees tend to not respond well to that. So to some degree, that has resulted in continued internal sourcing uh, from that company. Uh, but I mean, it's I, I think, look, you know this, too, from your work. Um, uh, and incidentally, I, I should like probably note here and I, there's actually a whole questions I want to ask you about about no filter. But um, uh, you know, my, uh, my interrogator here, uh, did write, um, the definitive book on Instagram's rise and it's, uh, you know, uh, tenure, uh, early tenure at, at meta and early to mid tenure, I'd say. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess, uh, if I can briefly turn the table here, I, I guess I would, I would want to ask if, um, I guess in terms of sort of the things that, because I wasn't even company covering Meta, I think, in, in a lot of the time when you were, you know, covering uh, Instagram and doing really good work there. Um, I would love to know a bit sort of how you think the Meta product philosophy shaped Instagram in particular, given that that is uh, of Meta's platforms, arguably still the most the hottest and most culturally relevant. Well, I think one thing that just sort of the big shock in, in my book as I was reporting it out is that you know despite what we know about how how driven mark zuckerberg is towards growth and how much he cares about um accelerating that in any way possible instagram had a lot of opportunities to grow that zuckerberg didn't want to pursue because he thought that it would cannibalize facebook's growth yeah. So tied into all of these um, ambitions is also a lot of ego around being an inventor, um, being a technologist, being the one who who solves the problem and, and makes the the product that wins. Um, and, you know, Kevin Systrom, the founder of Instagram, ultimately left the company, uh, as did his his co-founder Mike Krieger same thing happened with the co-founders of WhatsApp um this this way that they were they were growing their products where they they didn't want growth for the sake of of um you know manipulating people because they thought that, that would be low quality growth um that was just not something that that, that philosophy didn't, didn't mesh well. The simplicity of an app. And now I think that Instagram is pretty much just another version of Facebook. It's like Facebook with a different skin. All the data is connected. All of the, yep. the um, you know, algorithmic modeling is connected, Pinterest, messaging. Yeah. And the, the platform itself is getting a whole lot more complicated, much as uh, Facebook has over the years and diluting its power. Um, and so even though it continues to grow, I think that 
it it is losing that that meaning and i think you and i would probably agree on on um this this fault of the grow at all costs philosophy which is that at a certain point um when you give people more of what the data shows they engage with the quality of the content that they see degrades even if you have people befriending more people (laughs) then then you as an individual don't want to share as many meaningful things um and that could actually hurt the platform's growth in a way and that's why they had to turn now to reels yeah i think that this is actually a this is a really good point and one that that also does come up in the book is that um the company just found itself deeply uncomfortable ever considering questions of quality. And to some degree, I think it alienated a lot of the entities that, um, you know, made it succeed. Uh, and this especially goes for Instagram, right? Um, they never had any appreciation for original content. I mean, they said they did, right? You know, that the way to succeed in the platform was to post good original content. Um, that's actually not correct. Everyone internally understood that the way you succeed on the platform is to steal content from other sources, uh, possibly even other Facebook users uh, that has already succeeded. Because one thing, once something went viral, it would almost certainly go viral again. And so, like, rather than rewarding people who were actually like creating culture, right, as the Instagram, um, uh, you know, sort of motto goes. Um, they rewarded people who, you know, paid freelancers in Bangladesh $20 to compile dirt bike accidents, right? And, like, I think it was a very hard thing to explain to creators who were, like, earnestly trying to produce good material for the platform, um, you know, like, why they should do that when, you know, they were just getting slaughtered by a kind of cheesy algorithm amplification tactics, right? Like... And, um, you know, I think from a, a lot of people internally were just sort of screaming, hey, stop, like, you know, you're basically in the process of killing the golden goose. And uh, they never listened to that. Um, I mean, the top posts on the platform were frequently um, pretty vile. There is a scene in the book in which uh, uh, I have to think how to phrase this one. Um, uh, it is a... Uh, Close up of someone's exposed nude posterior is the uh, uh, the top post on the on Facebook for an entire day. <laughs> they just didn't even notice, right? Because they didn't didn't pay attention to content quality. Um, and you know, at some point, there's kind of a piper to pay there. And I think um, you know, I'm sure some of your sources from Instagram would say that they probably are paying it to some degree. That in the cultural relevance and kind of the future of the app, um, that uh, they've taken a hit. Am I wrong about that? I don't think you're wrong. I think I think in order to um, to drive culture, you need to have people who are doing something that others are are following or envious of. And um, people aren't young people aren't going to join a platform aspiring to be the person who compiled the videos of viral bike accidents. Right? They want to join um, TikTok to be the next Charlie DeMello. So so I think that that. You know, when Facebook tries to replicate and Instagram tries to replicate what's worked elsewhere, um, they're missing that secret sauce of the original content creators that drive culture and and um, make a difference. And, and it could be killing them. Um, I, what does your Facebook feed look like right now? 
Oh God, you don't want to ask that. Um, I've been doing work related to child safety recently. Okay. And so the work that I've been doing to do that is um, uh, hideous. Uh, likewise, the, um, you know, the work related to the 2024 elections. I think this is something that is just like profoundly sad to me is that to some degree, things haven't changed since 2016. Uh, it is still uh, a successful tactic for overseas content farms to like post videos of, you know, stolen content, shocking content, you know, like we're talking people with um, uh, deformities, like, you know, like slash, like, you know, like literally parasitic worms coming out of their skin, you know, things that are just like kind of hideous to look at. You can build up a huge audience that way. Um, and then they'll run overlapping pages that promote this stuff. Um, and so, you know, I think as a something I have to remind myself of from time to time is that as a person who researches the platform, uh, it doesn't all look like this. But at the same time, you know, it, clearly this stuff is wildly popular. It's, um, you know, you can get a half million followers on Facebook very easily by just like posting awful contents of like or awful videos of people presumably dying in car accidents right that is a really successful strategy still and to some degree i think the platform is just sort of still open for business for anyone who has uh you know half a brain and the will to manipulate it what are your concerns uh looking ahead to the 2024 presidential election given that we know a lot of these problems haven't been solved that a lot of the the same viral mechanics are at play plus the new addition of the AI ingredient. Yeah. Um, I mean, to some degree, AI isn't new for the platform, right? I mean, I understand the AI generated content is kind of a a bit of the focus, but the idea that you have um, uh, AI systems that are just acting in chaotic, uh, unpredictable ways and promoting weird stuff. um, That's, uh, you know, Hey, like, Facebook sort of uh, pioneered that. Um, I think one concern I've got for U.S. and 2024, um, you know, and any other election is that the company has never really confronted or settled permanently the question of uh, whether it is okay for a domestic actor to attempt to manipulate the algorithm. Um, by, you know, whether it's by promoting the same content from 50 different accounts simultaneously, which, uh, you know, is a known problem that causes the algorithm to think it's actually really popular when it's just being posted by like one guy with 50 accounts. Um, Or uh, whether it's, um, you know, sort of certain types of content that seem to be extremely good at um, riling people up, Uh, you know, things that, you know, the company internally refers to as hate bait, They've never really figured out how to deal with things that are coming from U.S. actors now, right? If it's like the Russians, yeah, okay, they'll take them down, right? Um, And they will issue a press release. But um, if it's a super PAC or, um, you know, some sort of political party or um, there are technically rules against it but they don't necessarily enforce them in any way that would be a deterrent, if that makes sense. And so I, and I do have some concern that like we've kind of moved on from kind of the core of the platform to AI and AI, you know, a generative AI is kind of the concern. Um, uh, I, I do think that 
some of the core mechanics issues that just sort of remain unresolved are um, are still pretty scary, uh, particularly, I mean, the company's issued a ruling saying that, you know, at this point, you can say the 2020 election was stolen. You can't say the 2024 election will be stolen necessarily um, currently. But like this is one of those things where they're splitting hairs in a way where it, it's very easy to think about how um, you're going to have the exact same sort of thing that led to stop the steal. And to some degree that drove the drumbeat of attention that preceded January 6th, um, it's going to be very easy for someone to do that again if they so choose. Or even have a coded phrase like stop the steal. That isn't specifically like I think the election was stolen, but. Um, yeah, exactly. And and so it's, it's a, yeah. And so I think that's a that's a thing is that they've always really tried to focus on just like purely rules based enforcement, you know, like meta wants to like live in a world where the only choice they ever make is do we take things down? Uh, or do we like kind of quietly suppress them um, via, you know, automated systems? And, and I think that it's the platform at this point has certainly grown into both, both platforms really have grown into curatorial functions. And, uh, you know, I, I think there is a, a, um, they haven't really addressed the problem that whoever screams loudest wins. Um, and they seem to be really reluctant to take that on as a challenge. So, okay. The other factor at play, of course, is that meta has, uh, different stated priorities now, right? The company is called Meta now. It's 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 all about AI and the metaverse. They barely spoke about any of these issues on their most recent earnings call. Yep. Does that concern you? I mean, that plus the recent layoffs, the sort of restructuring of the company. Oh yeah. They, how how does on. that play into 2024? They, they have absolutely moved on from governing the platforms. I mean, I think you're totally right about there was a period of time in which Instagram's growth was almost seen as threatening um, to Mark Zuckerberg because, you know, Facebook was the thing he cared about. I think it would be very hard to make the case that Mark Zuckerberg is deeply concerned about Facebook in any way other than that it continue to perform because that's still the work workhorse for money, right? That's where like less of revenues coming from still is the blue app. Um, But I mean, he's kind of said as much, right. That, that, um, you know, they'll continue to do some things on it, but like, as you know, they have um, slashed uh, a lot of staff there and they've moved a whole bunch of people first into virtual reality and then into sort of generative AI related work. Um, I mean, I think very clearly the core platforms that still account for like 90 high 90 odd percent of uh of revenues um just aren't that interesting anymore to them um and uh there is an element of neglect here certainly on the safety front and i i think there's an element where like to some degree the facebook files kind of accelerated this uh they were already starting to treat researchers and data scientists who were looking at societal issues as a potential fifth column and i think francis haugen um to some degree made clear that um there was a portion of the company that seemed to be more loyal to um their principles um than they were to the company and uh, i think that's a very dangerous thing um if you're meta potentially uh, and so um yeah you know they they got rid of a lot of people and i think that you know it's it's kind of hard to see how the company would perform much 
better, given that it hasn't addressed some of the design issues and yet it has cut some of the staff, right? The civic team doesn't exist anymore. Um, uh, you know, so, so much for that. So you see the cracks forming, you see this neglect of the main platform, neglect of, of potentially even Instagram, dependence on those platforms to still grow so that Zuckerberg can can pursue these other goals. Um, I just looked up the stock returns for this year. It's up 176% so far. Um, Absolutely. So, so more than more than doubled by a lot. Um, do you think that there is ever a moment of reckoning that will actually change Facebook? Um, do you think that that you know these these returns? Like, what what did what does that mean to you uh, when you see governments trying to push back? And the company is still still thriving. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would say that I, I think that the pushback so far has been pretty limited, right? Um, I mean, in the U.S., there was on child safety in particular. There was uh, back in 2021, there were a lot of hearings. There was the promise of legislation coming soon. There was bipartisan agreement. Some of this stuff was really problematic. Nothing ever happened. Um in the EU, EU, you do have uh, the Digital Services Act, and a little more in the terms of way of, in, in in the way of regulatory action um, happening over there. But uh, I do think that um, uh, right now it's pretty muted, and I think that um, you know to some degree uh, the stock price reflects that um, recommending content. Uh, in as aggressive a fashion as possible, um, and then running ads next to it is uh, still a truly fantastic business. Um, you know, the externalities are not ones that are captured by the stock price, if that makes sense. And and I think something that is, is really notable is that the company really has kind of dropped a lot of the ideological mission um, that, you know, they initially pursued. Like, you know, I think, you know, back in the day, People used to pride themselves on they wouldn't look consider the revenue impact of things, right? It was all supposed to be about what was best for the user, what increased usage, right? And I think, again, what increased usage and what was best for the user is sometimes perhaps not as overlapping as the company would like to think, as we discussed earlier. But like the whole idea was you don't talk about money. Well, I mean, this year we have had the year of efficiency, right, where Mark Zuckerberg right. has cut um, around a quarter of all staff, even though the margin that they're running is, uh, you know, it's always been around the 40% range, right? This is a truly incredible business. There is no shortage of resources yet all the same. And I think one of the things that's fascinating to me is that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has sole control of the company, right? If he wants to spend more on safety work or he wants to do something that might not be in the near-term growth, um, uh, interest of growth, uh, you know, he absolutely can. He set up the company in that way. But I think the interesting thing is that um, it seems like they don't want to, right? Like they are now into making money as a uh, as an activity and, you know, making money and funding new, basically new product. That's uh, the actual like kind of we're going to connect people and make the world a better place. I think they've sort of withdrawn from that territory to some degree. Why do you, why do you think so? I mean, do you think that the... One of my theories is just like the stock falling in um, in 2021 was a, a real shock to the system. Um, they they'd grown and grown and grown, and that was the first year that they really had a revenue shortfall, and everyone freaked out, and employees 
saw their net worth drop and now they realize what they care about more or do you have another theory i mean what is what is the reason Mm -hmm. that meta is sort of abandoning its um do-gooder external facing narrative there are a few things that have occurred that i think are notable uh, one of them is if you notice the leadership team has just contracted um, uh, over and over again. Um, in particular, a lot of women have left, um, you know, Cheryl Sandberg being the most notable, but there are a lot of them. Um, and uh, I think at this point, it tends to be a group of people that are extremely loyal to Mark um, and, uh, you know, tend to be... Um, advocates for his approach. So I think to some degree, internal discussion and debate has uh, really taken a hit over the last few years. Um, you know, this is a, a very much a Mark Zuckerberg production, right? Um, and um, I think it is, you know, obviously the, I think it, my sense is that like, it's not that there's a concern as much that Mark Zuckerberg's personal net worth is falling too much uh, at any point. Um, it's that to some degree, there's a belief that if the company's stock isn't doing well, then uh, it won't be able to attract talent. And if it can't attract talent, then it can't build the next big thing. And so, you know, it's, uh, I, I think it's interesting because this is a company that was set up supposed to be, to be, uh, you know, kind of immune to stock price concerns, but at the end of the day, it seems like it's acting, you know, it tracks if, very closely to morale. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly and attractiveness in, in Silicon Valley. So when you see the these dynamics at play, um, we also see that it looks like the metaverse isn't really catching like, right at the end of your book that the metaverse is not super clear if anybody wants that. Uh, and that well, I'd, I'd say it's starting to get super clear whether anybody wants that. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, if you notice... If that's there's the future, though, where's not- this company going? Yeah, I mean, I, it's. I think this is like kind of one of the fascinating things, right? Is that like the the engine of this company is still Facebook and Instagram. Um, uh, you know, again, the, the revenue breakdowns we've seen: sixty percent Facebook, forty percent Instagram. Um, Instagram growing a little better than Facebook, but like, it's actually even greater than that. I think it might have been like sixty five percent Facebook. Um, but uh, you know, it's it's. Like they have this legacy product that is certainly not the center of attention anymore, uh, other than in the most sort of like um, execution based, you know, let's continue, you know, we've got to keep growth going uh, sort of way. Uh, you know, I think the metaverse stuff, I'm not saying that, that virtual reality is not still the future, but it has an uncanny knack of being the future and never becoming the present. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, the meta rebranding and kind of the focus on launching horizon worlds, which was their kind of metaverse showcase. Um, like it just really didn't go well. Um, you know, one of my colleagues, Megan Babrowski, um, spent a few days in the metaverse and you know, we had some, got some internal usage statistics as well. Um, I mean, for a company that has global ambitions and was talking about how the metaverse would soon be at a billion users, um, you know, Horizon Worlds is kind of all but defunct. Like, very clearly, they didn't get that right. Um, obviously, now they're very focused on generative AI, but then again, so is everyone, right? Um, and, 
And I, I think there is an element of this where some of it does come down to Mark and, and seeking a legacy. Like, as, as you know, there was a point in time when, um, you know, he was actually doing public polling. You know, he had a, had a pollster that was asking. Oh, they're not still doing that? I love those polls. Yeah, yeah. Whether, whether Mark Zuckerberg was an innovator, right, was yeah. like a, yeah, a question on the poll. Uh, and so it's like kind of a, um, a, uh, a very weird little... Um, uh, yeah, it's a very, it's a, it's a, you know, I think there is to some degree a, a legacy question that he's working on. And right now it seems like it's less based on, you know, kind of running the existing products well than it is on creating something new. They also have those, is Facebook good for the world polls? Um, that they have actually killed that one internally um, because uh, at least, you know, like they, they used to have a metric, uh, a survey metric where they would ask people whether they thought content was good for the world. Uh, and they stopped that because the implication that perhaps Facebook might be promoting things that was not good for the world was viewed as um, a little too um, uh, awkward of a question to have in your hands, if that makes sense. This was all part of the kind of the post-research uh, crackdown um, that happened after I think Francis Haugen demonstrated how much damning material there was internally. So final question. Um, say I'm a lawmaker reading your book and I want to do something about this. Right? I, wa- I want to, to, you know, instill in this company that they have built this incredibly powerful um, tool that, that is shaping people's lives and, and maybe maybe those lives are even at stake. And, um, and I agree with some of the employees that have spoken with you. What could I do that, that hasn't been attempted? Um, or even, you know, what could I say? Uh, how, how can, how can this get resolved if at all from the outside or does it have to come from within Meta? So the, I mean, the debates internally are, Debate about this company has, I think, frequently been mired down in politics, right? The idea being that one party wants to change it in a way that would be detrimental to the other party, and therefore everyone must fight about it. Um, uh, and, you know, that's kind of a recipe for gridlock, obviously. Um, you know, I think that um, uh, I, I have always found the question of responsibility for recommendation systems and what they do to be um, an interesting one. I, I think it's a, a pretty, you know, Section 230, right, is the law that, that sort of um, shields internet platforms responsibility for user-generated content was built with uh, a prodigy bulletin board in mind, right? Um, uh, not a, you know, a recommendation system. And so it's always been, again, yeah, I, I don't get into the, the legal side of things, but I do think in terms of public appreciation and something that would be good for lawmakers and everyone else to think about a bit is um, what responsibilities platforms have for what they recommend um, and whether it is acceptable to be recommending things that you literally don't understand what you're recommending um, whatsoever. Uh, You know, I think very rarely uh, can you think of a circumstance in which like unleashing a machine and then saying, oh, well, it's uh, driven by itself now, you know, not my responsibility for what it does, right? Like that that doesn't sound like a thing that one would be able to do, but to some degree that is the way we approach social media regulation. Um, 
And I think that's an interesting thing to talk about. Um, again, I, you know, Section 230, what laws are good? These are um, beyond my, um, you know, beyond my scope. But, uh, but I do think that, um, that looking at design choices uh, and whether those are, you know, say fair and reasonable to users, um, and then um, looking at what recommendations, uh, what recommendation systems do and how they function. Those are things that, that would be really useful. And then finally, I think just transparency. Honestly, like um, no one will ever be able to get that many internal records out of Meta again, as Francis Haugen did. They have um, tightened down to the best of their ability. Uh, and I think... Uh, you know, waiting for reporters to get their hands on on things is a pretty terrible way of circulating information to the public. I uh, I think it's better than nothing, but like it's not you know neither that nor sort of you know kind of self reporting via the platforms seems like a particularly useful approach. I'm talking more about just meta here, right? Is that it seems like there needs to be some level of standardized disclosure of what these platforms are doing. And if there was anything that's, I think, really optimistic coming out of the, the book project and just sort of all of the Facebook files stuff, it's that there are like, at this point, there is a large body of former employees who have been trained in truly incredible circumstances with truly incredible data access on how this stuff works, right? There are, um, at this point, sort of the technocrats of um, platform mechanics out and wild. And, um, you know, a lot of them are, a lot more of them certainly are speaking their minds these days, right? Like, it's just pretty easy to find someone who wants to talk rec systems, recommendation systems um, these days and has some experience with it. Whereas when, you know, I started this beat in 2019, that was, um, those people were very few and far between uh, and they were much harder to find. Well, it's a fascinating book, Broken Code by Jeff Horowitz. Thank you so much for all your time today. Um, It's been a a really great discussion. Thank you so much for for hosting this thing. Thank you, Sarah. Really appreciate it. And also No Filter by Sarah Fryer, released a while back, but still good. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you are interested in podcasts about nonfiction books, listen to C-SPAN's Book Notes Plus podcast for interviews with authors and historians hosted by Brian Lamb.